Our scripture today comes from Luke chapter 9, 51 to 62 from the Common English Bible. As the time approached when Jesus was to be taken up into heaven, he determined to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers on ahead of him. Along the way, they entered a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival, but the Samaritan villagers refused to welcome him because he was determined to go to Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? But Jesus turned and spoke sternly to them, and they went on to another village. Following Jesus. As Jesus and his disciples traveled along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds in the sky have nests, but the human one has no place to rest his head. Then Jesus said to someone else, Follow me. He replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and spread the news of God's kingdom. Someone else said to Jesus, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say goodbye to those in my house. Jesus said to him, No one who puts a hand on the plow and looks back is fit for God's kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. So for the last few weeks, we've been looking at, the, at stories about the prophet Elijah. But because we have our congregational meeting right after church, I want to keep it brief. And, and frankly, stories about Elijah take some time to, to tell and sort of figure out. So this morning, I'm just going to do sort of like a brief reflection on our lectionary passage from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, this is not a beloved text of most people because, you know, the disciples asked to rain down fire on a local ethnic minority, and then Jesus is super harsh with some folks that want to follow him. I mean, no one looks great in this passage. So I'm going to basically just uh, look at two things this morning. Uh, firstly, why did the disciples ask to rain down fire? And secondly, why is Jesus so mean? So let's start with uh, raining down fire. Uh, and we'll, we'll start sort of a, a quick recap of what's happening. Uh, the Samaritans are an ethnic religious community who are considered enemies of the Israelites because long ago their ancestors married foreign invaders and that also had some implications on their kosher laws and all kinds of stuff. And so faithful Jews weren't supposed to associate with Samaritans. But Jesus has already broken this rule when he revealed his identity to a Samaritan woman at the well. So Jesus is kind of in with the Samaritans. So he sends his disciples ahead to find a place to stay in Samaria, which would have been a huge no-no, but they go. And the Samaritans 
seem welcoming. At first, they welcome the disciples into the village until they learn that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, at which point they say he can't stay there. And, and this is sort of just speculation on my part, but my hunch is that, that Jesus going to Jerusalem is it's like a bridge too far for the Samaritan community. Because if Jesus is, is going to Jerusalem, he's in relationship with their enemies, and the Samaritans want Jesus to be 100% on their side. Basically, they'll welcome Jesus if he has nothing to do with the temple. So the Samaritans are sort of setting the conditions under which they'll follow Jesus. And this makes the disciples super angry. So they ask Jesus, should we, should we ask to rain down fire on them? And why in the world would they suggest this? They should know better. I mean, really, they should know better because Jesus just told them how to handle this exact situation. This story comes to us at the end of Luke 9. At the very beginning of Luke 9, uh, Jesus sends out the disciples to proclaim the kingdom, to heal the sick. And then Jesus says, well, here's what you do when you're not welcomed in a village. Whenever they don't welcome you, as you leave the city, shake, your dust, shake the dust off your feet as a witness against them. To translate this with the words of St. Swift, you know what's coming? Shake it off. But the disciples do not shake it off. Their quick turn towards violence actually feels kind of inexcusable, except for there's one other thing that happens right after Jesus tells them to shake it off. Jesus invites Peter, James, and John up a mountain where Jesus is transfigured. And you know who else shows up? Elijah. And we've been hearing about Elijah for the past few weeks and how Elijah deals with defiant religious groups that are enemies of Israel. We already told the story of him killing the, pop, the prophets of Baal. And then in another chapter, Elijah actually asks God to rain down fire from heaven to kill his enemies. And, and we'll, we'll see actually that in this passage, there, like throughout, there are constant parallels between Elijah and Jesus. So much so that I'm actually, in a couple weeks, I'm going to talk again about this passage and look at Jesus and Elijah. But for now, just know that Elijah and Jesus kind of represent two very different ways of dealing with enemies. So the disciples tried an olive branch to the Samaritans, and it failed. So it, it feels like they're kind of checking in with Jesus to be like, are we sure we don't want to rain down fire? I mean, we did just see Elijah and everything. And this question, because it is a question, it, it feels like a setup so that Jesus can, can demonstrate the way of love, responding with compassion and tenderness, but instead he does the opposite. Jesus rebukes the disciples, then seems to take out his frustration on a couple of folks that want to follow him. Uh, 
especially this, this poor guy who wants to follow Jesus, but first needs to bury his father. I mean, that seems like a really reasonable request. But Jesus says, no way, let the dead bury the dead. And then Jesus continues, actually, sort of in another interaction, saying that no one who puts a hand on the plow and looks back is fit to follow. And again, this feels, at least to me, this feels just unnecessarily harsh. It feels unkind. But there are a couple of things going on that help us see this a little bit differently. First of all, uh, there's a way that this response right here has nothing to do with the person who wants to follow Jesus. It's all about Jesus and Elijah. Because this story is an exact parallel of another story where Elijah discovers his successor, the prophet who he'll train, plowing a field. And this, this sort of wannabe prophet leaves the plow behind, but then says, just let me kiss my mom and dad, and then I'll follow you. And Elijah says, go for it. I won't stop you. So just sort of like one thing that's causing Jesus to act so strangely is that he's making a point about how he's different than the prophets who came before him. But we'll, we'll get more into that in a couple weeks. Because there is a, I think there's an even more interesting reason uh, that Jesus told the, the would-be disciple not to bury his father. Had he buried his father, he would have, it would have been impossible for him to follow Jesus. And that's because in, in the ancient Near East, the custom, the common burial practice took a year to complete. So after someone died, you'd put their body in a tomb for a year. And that, that gave time for the, the body to decompose, and their bones would be collected and put in an ossuary, which is just a fancy word for a bone box. And then at that time, uh, there is a second funeral that concluded the year-long mourning period. And, you know, and the best part about this is how cute the ossuaries are. This is, uh, ooh, do we have a, a picture here? Um, oh, maybe we don't. Um, oh, there it is. Isn't that great? Um, that is a, a bone box from the Calliolithic period. And I think my presumption is just that, I don't know, there were no modestly priced receptacles available. So the bereaved made these really cute bone boxes to store the remains of their loved one. But Really, this has nothing to do with my sermon. I just wanted to show this picture because I think it's awesome. Um, the point that I was making is that, that Jesus doesn't have time to wait. The, the first verse of our scripture says that Jesus had turned his face towards Jerusalem where he'd end up being killed, resurrected, and ascend to heaven. Jesus doesn't have much time. And if this potential disciple spends the ne next year mourning, he'd miss the opportunity to experience the kingdom of God made real in the life of Jesus. It, it feels like, yes, maybe Jesus is a little bit exasperated, but it feels like he's saying, enough already. First of all, I'm not Elijah. I'm not going to rain down fire. And second, 
You don't get to set the conditions under which you follow me. The Samaritans don't get to decide where I travel, and my mission is not going to wait till it's convenient for everyone who wants to join. You don't want to miss this. So just follow me. Have faith in me. Trust me. And, and do what I ask. And I think as I like sat with that, this sort of urgent call to just have faith to trust, it was pretty challenging, actually. I think my first, well, you know, my first reaction was to think about all of the religious leaders that might abuse this passage by telling people to follow them in the same manner. You know, never hesitate, never question, disregard your family and follow me. And of course that feels bad because you know that things like that happen and it's traumatic for folks. But, but that's a completely different situation. Jesus is not setting up a model for church leadership. Jesus is the Messiah telling his followers that in, in this particular situation, they need to let go of their preconceived ideas of how God should act. They need to trust. And that's, that's actually probably what's really challenging to me and, and what probably does translate to our lives. Because we have ideas and expectations about how God does act and how God should act in our world. And those, those expectations often reflect our, our own prejudice, our judgments about people we don't know, and our unspoken beliefs that we have everything figured out. But Jesus always invites us into liberation, even liberation from our ideas about how God should act. So uh, my hope is that this rather bizarre passage can be maybe even an invitation to wonder, an invitation to be curious about how God's spirit is alive in ways that we couldn't possibly imagine. Amen.